Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and I've got a lot of updates. So I'm actually going to do it in the beginning this week as opposed to at the end. And so the first thing is I'm Dr. JB3 now. And you'll hear in this episode, I think we reference um, me preparing to defend, but ironically, I actually finished and graduate tomorrow. So I think that'll be uh, Thursday by the time you hear that. So Thursday, the 13th of May, I will be officially Dr. James Bell the third. Long road, glad to be at the end of it. Excited for all the things that I've got planned. I've got a, a special announcement coming this Friday. If you follow us on any of our social media, you'll see it. So just stay tuned for that. Also, also, I am officially fully vaccinated and so i'm ready to go outside fly me out i just i just want to be somewhere where it's warm and preferably where i can have an adult beverage that would be glorious at this point in my life enough stuff about me let's talk about this week's episode and we are talking all about this notion of patient safety and it's so interesting to me that you know i record these episodes well in advance but they always seem to align with something that's happening nationally. And in this case, it's actually something that's happened closer to home. I had a close family member go to the hospital over the weekend and they were complaining of chest pains. I think that was Thursday. And we talked and he said, hey, you know, take care of yourself, slow down. And they ended up going back to the doctor and receiving a special kind of medication where they actually ended up having an adverse reaction and ended up swelling uh, all over their body, um, actually ended up on a ventilator. And I mean, it was it was really scary stuff. And had the prescribing physician taken the time, do a little research into the history of this particular medication that was prescribed, they would have seen that there's actually instances of error when it comes to that and adverse reactions. And so I'm um, I'm elated that my family members doing much better, but at the same time, it brings up this greater notion of patient safety and some of the disparities that come with that. And I am excited to introduce you all to Dr. Brian O. Buckley, who is really, it's really funny. We were at Michigan State at the same time and we followed like a very similar trajectory in many ways. We graduated, we both went to go get our master's. We still stayed in the Lansing area we worked like across the street from each other. He was at the Health and Hospital Association. I was at the Public Health Institute. And he got married. I got married. We split ways because I ended up having children. He did not yet. And then he went to go get his doctorate. I went to go get my doctorate. I mean, it's just a, a very funny trajectory, but I'm, I'm grateful for his fellowship. And so I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Brian O. Buckley. Dr. Buckley. Yeah, sure. So one first, thank you, James, for the invitation. It's nice to, you know, talk with colleagues. You're right. We definitely have, seem like we intersect quite a lot uh, throughout our trajectory at uh, Michigan State. So the simple answer of where I'm from, I am from Maryland, born and raised. Uh, but the complex answer I think I've given other people, especially since moving around is I feel like I'm part of three different communities. And so these three M states. So there's Maryland, where I was born and raised. 
I spent a good portion of my life in Michigan, nearly, I think, 14 years. And so I always like to tell people I became a man in Michigan. Um, and then in the last uh, leg of my life, I was in Massachusetts, where I was working on my doctorate and really, if anything, found my passions there and found out who I really was. And now I'm back in Maryland. So uh, that's like the long answer of where I'm from. When it comes to educational background as a whole, uh, I always uh, say I have the community education side of myself and then there's the formal education. So um, one thing that many people may not always know about me is my parents are both immigrants uh, from the Caribbean. Uh, my mom's from the country of Antigua and my dad's from the country of St. Kitts Nevis. And together they in many ways, the up, being just raised in a Caribbean family and an immigrant family. Uh, meeting my, I, I got blessed to meet my grandparents and my great grandparents. They really taught me the values of community and this idea of treating each other with respect. And so a lot of my education of just who I am as a person, how I show up comes from their tutelage and cultural humility that I went through every time I went to Antigua every year. But then the formal side, which I think people usually know me for, first and foremost, I'm a Michigan State University Spartan. As I said before, I became a man in Michigan. Uh, and while at Michigan State, you know, I got my bachelor's in microbiology and molecular genetics. And at that time, really focusing on epidemiology and immunology. And then later um, transitioned right after my undergrad to working on my master's in public health from the College of Human Medicine at MSU, which I focused on um, healthcare administration and infectious diseases. Um, and then last, uh, which I think is the part that's most recent, I think I can still call myself a recent graduate right now, uh, I'm still within that year span, is I recently graduated with my doctor of public health from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with a focus on public health leadership, management, and policy. And so I have to ask, just as a sidebar, you've got three states with three M's. Which one's your favorite? Oh, that's a good one. So I would say my favorite state, I will have to say Michigan. That's a weird thing. Even though I'm born and raised in Maryland, I really ended up finding a lot about my interest and in, I'd say becoming a man in Michigan. I was introduced to Michigan beer, Michigan <laughs> camping, this idea of going up north and traveling within your own state. Uh, and so, and also got to be able to introspectively look at myself. Uh, coming from Maryland, which tends to be a fairly diverse area, I never really saw what uh, disparities even looked like, um, especially when you came to Michigan, you really saw this big divide from Detroit, or if you're in Grand Rapids and everyone in between and this kind of clickiness. And so in many ways, I learned a lot about, I was able to reflect on my, myself as a person growing up in my own upbringing, uh, and really learned how to show up, how to be you know, how to have conversations across the aisle, especially Michigan, which does tend to be slightly a little bit more conservative than Maryland, and how to translate uh, public health and healthcare across that gradient. So what are you doing currently? Uh, too much. Uh, I hear that. So I, I have a couple of things that I'm doing right now. I like to divide my my mind like myself in three buckets. I think of myself as a researcher, an educator, and a public health change agent. So as a researcher, I have my formal role as a fellow and program director with the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, 
which is clearly part of MedStar Health, which is actually the largest academic medical health system in the mid-Atlantic area. So it's about 10 hospitals or so. Um, so for folks that are familiar with like Georgetown Hospital in DC, MedStar owns that. Uh, so two hospitals in DC and um, the rest of them in Maryland. And so I specifically work on patient safety and quality research. And to go even deeper in that, I work on translational health service research and to improve diagnostic um, capacity. And so I'm part of two federally funded contracts, which one of them looks into how do we better diagnose people in healthcare? Because, um, and when we talk about misdiagnosis, we're talking about delayed diagnosis, misdiagnosis, uh, people just got the wrong diagnosis wrong. And so in many ways, that's like the project and how do we build team capacity around that? And then a second one, which isn't too far from that first one is cardiovascular health in women and how to diagnose that. Uh, since there is uh, a difference in the diagnosis process for men and women and how do we better make that more efficient. So that's like the researcher side of myself and I get to work on a lot of cool projects and working with stakeholders. The educator side of me is I run, I'm the program director for a large COVID-19 uh, project with nursing homes. So I have about 115 nursing homes across the Maryland, DC, Virginia area in which I'm working with them on a quality improvement education uh, short-term project around how do we think about COVID-19 management, infection prevention and quality improvement. And so that's one part of the education and Starting next month, I will actually be uh, teaching my first course as a faculty member of the Georgetown University School of Medicine as an assistant professor, where I'll be teaching healthcare change management, specifically for our executive master's program for safety and quality leadership. And then last, as I said, I'm doing too many things these days is a public health change agent. These I call all my extracurricular activities. Uh, that give me joy and meaning and work is I do a lot of work with the American Public Health Association. Uh, I'm actually the immediate past chair of the community health and public policy development section in APHA, so which is the third largest section in APHA, so about 4,000 plus members. I also work with uh, one of the founding executive board members for the DRPH coalition uh, as the director of development. And so this is a group of all the doctor and public health uh, degree holders and students across the nation and actually the world, really focusing on public health leadership across the spectrum and the need for more public health leadership. And then last, I do a lot of uh, diversity and inclusion work um, for the Harvard School of Public Health um, around how do we create an anti-racist culture? How do we think about assessment? And how do we think about recruitment and retention uh, within the school? So as I said, doing way too many things, I still wonder when I actually find any time to sleep, but um, I'm loving everything I'm doing. So that's a good thing. So in short, it sounds like I could have you on here for like four different episodes and we have four completely different conversations. At minimum, at minimum I could probably have a conversation about a lot of different things, whether you're on the public health side, the healthcare side, the educator side, change management. So yeah, lots of different things going on each and every day. I'm most interested in part of the reason why I reached out when I started thinking about this episode was really around this idea of patient safety. So digging into the, your, your healthcare side of things. So in the simplest of terms, what is patient safety? 
The simplest way I have really, I usually go with the World Health Organization's definition, which is really prevention of errors and adverse events um, associate, um, for patients in the healthcare system. So the simple way I would try to translate that is zero harm in healthcare, that simple. You should not be harmed in healthcare in any shape, form, or way, zero harm. So that is the simplest definition of patient safety that I would probably tell others. It was very hard when I first started uh, working in patient safety because my mother would always ask like, what do you do um, as a whole? Because you know everyone knows like you're either a doctor or a lawyer and they perceive they know what you do, uh, but they're like, what do you do in patient safety? And so the way I also explain it is I work with providers and healthcare stakeholders to make sure you don't get harmed or die in a hospital. That's what patient safety is. I often find that that question to be the most difficult to answer, right? I remember in Louisiana, I met my wife's extended family for the first time. And they were like, so what do you do? And I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, so what do you do? It's <laughs> like, oh, okay. I realized I didn't answer your question at all. But back to you, this is, this is about you. Let's tie patient safety to the field of healthcare. And so what kind of impacts are we talking about here? Yeah, and so patient safety is not necessarily a new part of healthcare. It's been around for quite some time. And um, what really galvanized the world, I think, and specifically in the United States too, patient safety is a thing and became like this whole industry. It was in the late 90s, early 2000s. You might have heard of the Institute of Medicine. They used to, they come out with all these reports each and every year, kind of their landmark uh, reports. And one of the reports that came out was to err is human. And this report like changed the game. It, it essentially, the, the factoid that I always remember about this uh, report was it said nearly 50 to 100,000 patients die each year from preventable harm in American hospitals. And so to even translate that even to real terms, that's a plane, like a large plane, like you're traveling to California with probably 300 people. That's a plane going down a day of preventable deaths in healthcare. And it made everyone just kind of pause to say, we need to address this. And it sparked a whole bunch of activities from a very um, stakeholders from across the spectrum to saying, okay, we need to learn about what is causing these errors. And a lot of these errors within healthcare, a lot of times are related to communication breakdowns. Um, effective and ineffective communication was a big issue within healthcare. And then also thinking about the aspect of teamwork. So if anyone that's familiar with like Amy Edmondson's work on teaming, teaming is considered a verb. And there wasn't a lot of active teaming happening in healthcare at this time and not a lot of accountability and helping each other and that shared support model, that mutual support model. And this idea of a safety culture was not embedded. Back in the day um, in the early healthcare side, it was like, you know what, the chief safety officer does safety. Kind of reminds you of today when we think of the chief diversity officer. Oh, they do diversity. But one of the things that we learned in healthcare, specifically in the patient safety movement, is that safety culture, it's everyone's responsibility. It's not just the safety's officer responsibility. It's the leader's, the CEO's responsibility. It's the, the front desk person's responsibility, the um, security guard's responsibility, even the environmental cleaning uh, folks, their responsibility, and really this idea of creating a safety culture uh, within healthcare, where we all are doing this together. And this idea that we can't hide when we make mistakes, we have to be able to disclose. I always remember this Henry Ford uh, quote, 
he would always say innovation is the opportunity to begin, I'm sorry, failure is merely the um, opportunity to begin again in a more innovative way. And that's how patient safety really impacted the healthcare field. It realized, hey, failures are happening in healthcare. How can we learn from these failures and become better and address the system aspect of it? Thinking about patient safety as a whole, I'm curious as to if there are certain disparities that we see in relation to patient safety. You know, if so, who's more impacted? And of course, I got to ask why. Yeah, so there are a ton of disparities and um, disparities and um, patient safety, they go hand in hand. And this actually goes back to some of the work I did back in my earlier days before my doctorate working with the Michigan Health and Hospital Association actually was starting up their health equity center. And so I think to maybe level set for the folks that are listening, they're like, okay, disparities, what are these? So healthcare disparities really just refer to the difference in healthcare between groups. Um, and that can be on any different level, whether it be social, economic, environmental disadvantage. And when you think of many of your hospitals in both rural and urban settings, that's their community as a whole. And so these disparities can happen across different dimensions of age, location, gender, disability. We know how this all works with really that difference. So what really made this apparent, um, similar to that IOM report that I mentioned earlier, in 2002, there was a subsequent report that the Institute of Medicine came out with called Unequal Treatment. And it really called attention to this idea that there was racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. And that, um, that report, it kicked everyone's butt. It was saying, you know, there's disparities in healthcare that really exist um, when it comes to uh, minorities you know, becoming, uh, having worse outcomes than their white counterparts. So back to that plane analogy that I mentioned of a plane going down each and every day, the majority of those passengers on that plane, they were minorities or in low socioeconomic status. And that was a problem. It also talked about there is a lot of healthcare disparities in the broader context of inequity. So in saying, hey, there's institutional racism within our communities that healthcare occupies. And that's also um, um, leading to this, these disparities within the system. But I also talked about like, hey, there's a personal responsibility. Many of our providers across the system have biases that contribute to disparities. And we've heard that even now when many people go to hospitals, you know, they don't always, especially people that look like myself and like, you know, that have darker skin, they don't always feel like they're being treated the best way possible. I've even noticed when I used to do hospital visits, when I came in, you know, in full-fledged suit and everything, you know, looking my, you know, politician best, I was treated very different than if I was just wearing my Michigan State hoodie and some jeans. And you could see it, just feeling, even as a person in my own situation, I could see that difference. But then that report also really showed that there is a growing amount of uh, long-term health outcomes because of these disparities that keep these disadvantaged folks in this perpetual cycle of future harm. And so uh, there, disparities in patient safety have, as I said, been hand in hand. And one of the main patient safety arms of the government is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And they actually come out with a report each and every year because of this one report that I mentioned, um, these um, unequal treatments, they actually were um, forced by Congress and authorized by Congress to report annually on what are the disparities in healthcare each and every year. So I think they're actually 
at 2019 right now and their latest version. So that's about nearly 20 years. And although we have come a long way from that one report, there are still many disparities in those groups. In, in many of the groups that I mentioned, and I think to your, your original question, who is, who is the person being impacted? Uh, these are minorities. These are non-English um, speaker patients. These are people in low socioeconomic environments. As we often say in health, health happens where you live, work, and play. And so that's, those are the people that are being usually the most impacted by these um, disparities, but they are not the only ones. No matter what status you are, there are still disparities within healthcare. It's funny that you mentioned unequal treatment. I promise you, I have cited that report in just about every paper <laughs> in this doctoral program. And it's usually a different, um, a different stat that I'm pulling each time, but it's just so relevant in the fact that it, it's, it's almost timeless in a way that we it talk is. about disparities and inequities because it shows that we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, and to your thing, um, it is a timeless piece. If you read that, and I would encourage anyone listening, you know, you can just Google Institute of Medicine, you know, unequal treatment. If you read that today, you would, you would be thinking, oh, this is happening today, but this is like 20 years ago. So it shows that there are still so many things that we still need to address that we haven't addressed at a system level. You know, we, we put a lot of band-aids on things, but we haven't really completely impacted the system. So let's talk about today. Let's talk about the pandemic in the room, right? So let's talk about COVID-19 and its relation to patient safety. I mean, have we seen specific instances of misdiagnosis or anything that would um, suggest COVID-19 plays a role here? Yeah, well, COVID-19 has changed the game completely <laughs> when it comes to how you, we just do things in healthcare. And so in healthcare, we always try, and you might've heard people say, you know, we're always trying to get the triple aim. And Don Berwick, he used to be the former administrator for CMS and was one of the founders of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He would always say this triple aim is really about how do we improve care, the experience of care, how do we improve population health, and how do you reduce cost? COVID-19 has changed the game on every single one of those points. When it comes to the experience of care, to your point, um, patient safety is being impacted, especially as we think about prevention, especially when you think about screenings with people not being able to leave their houses or encouraged to stay home. Many people aren't going to their annual doctor visits or ha not having their annual doctor visits. They're not meeting their, you know, PCP often enough to making sure that, you know, they can be diagnosed in a timely fashion. You know, we have also aspects of access to care because the most, um, ICU units and the emergency departments are being deeply impacted with COVID patients coming in, the people that, you know, may not be that sick, they're getting left behind in many ways in that experience of care, and it's delaying any type of diagnosis for them. When we think of population health, uh, COVID-19 has impacted people's economic engine and when we think of their jobs. So unemployment rates are going up. This is, I think, the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. And we have millions of Americans across the United States that have lost their employer-sponsored health insurance. And that's a whole nother story on that being the, you know, the original sin of the United States. But that's also impacted many people flooding into emergency departments just to get basic care. 
because they're not sure if they don't want that one lump that they see on their chest or they see on their arm to be cancer and they want to make sure that they're addressing it in a timely fashion. And then when it comes to cost, you know, hospitals aren't able to do elective procedures and that's really their, you know, their bread <laughs> where they get most of their bread. And so they are dealing with these very complex cases and their ICU beds are being um, essentially overrun by COVID-19. So it's really changed the game. But I think even more so um, when patient safety and one area that our institute has actually been looking at it is looking at telehealth. So we telehealth, I mean, last, like, around this year, well, last year at this time, you would have been, you would not have been seeing too many people doing telehealth visits to their doctor. And now everyone's doing telehealth visits to their doctor. Since moving back home to Maryland, I've had three telehealth visits with my doctor. And one of the things that we need to start evaluating is how do we make sure that that's a highly reliable system that gets all the information that you would have gotten in person. And so from the patient safety perspective, what errors could happen around this tele um, communication method that we're using with telehealth and how can we make it more reliable in the future? And so COVID, as I said, has changed the game, but it's also provide a new opportunity, even with access of care to thinking about new modalities of how we can treat people at home and get to people in a more timely fashion. It sounds like we're naturally segueing into like some of the solutions that we see when it comes to challenges with patient safety. And I really wanted to hear from you around quality improvement as the lever there. I mean, one, it might be important to just to kind of define, define QI, but also what role does it play in the solution? Yeah, so QI, um, that's probably one of my most favorite things to somewhat to talk about. So QI is a really interesting approach um, to really looking at the system as a whole. Um, so QI really is the systematic approach to how do we eliminate reduce, rework, waste, losses, and production in the process. So I mentioned before, I remember the simple definition of patient safety is zero harm in hospitals. And so QI is a really good tool set. It has a, many different tools um, that you can utilize to really think about how do we address system level issues. And so some examples of QI-like or QI-somewhat uh, tools are failure modes effects analysis, which is one of my favorite tools, which is essentially this idea of, let's say we're going to build a new hospital, we're going to build a new wing, we're going to build a new center. What are all the things that could go wrong after we build it and we open it up? You know, what disparities could happen? What, you know, patients might not come? Is there accessibility? Is there a bus route? And really going through this whole process of trying to predict all the things that go wrong in a group setting, one of my favorite things to do. But you also hear a lot of key buzzwords in healthcare like lean and Six Sigma, which are QI-like. They really focus on that optimization of the process. How do we reduce waste as a whole? Where are there redundancies in um, the process, you know, why am I talking to five different people when this, I can just talk to one person to get what I need done. But then also, I think with, as we're talking about patient safety, root cause analysis, RCAs, are one of the most powerful tools that we utilize in patient safety. When errors do happen, how do we learn from them? And think about, was this something that the provider did? Is this a system issue? And one of the things that we do in QI is we're hard on the process, not the people. 
and I'm gonna say that a second time just in case people didn't hear, being hard on the process, not the people. Um, because that is, I think, something that's very important in QI that we're always looking at how do we address the system. And one of the most famous tools that's used is uh, PDCA or PDSA, depending on how you do it, Plan, Do, Study, Act. How can we create small tests of changes? And I always tell people, everyone's doing PDCA all the time. Anyone that has kids, has a spouse, you're constantly testing things out. You're planning an idea, you're seeing what happens, you're studying, you're evaluating it. And then you just, the act is really deciding, you know, do you want to, you know, you know, make this a normal process for yourself? Do you want to adjust this a little bit different and do it all over again? Or do you want to abandon the idea as a whole? And so that's really the role that QI has played a lot in general um, in healthcare. But then even more so um, with reducing disparities, I think it's actually a natural process and very appealing process to addressing disparities because it offers opportunities for you to modify the system and do those small tests. Um, so a lot of these things that we're talking about with disparities, these are like big wicked problems. So, you know, there's not like a silver bullet that's gonna solve all these things. But really, how do we do these small tests of changes, see what's working, what's not working, and then start to slowly scale it up. And one thing that QI focuses on so much is this idea of how do you collect data? Data, 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 data. You need data to see where we're moving. And one thing that hospitals have been notoriously bad at doing over the past couple of years is collecting demographic data. Um, and so the American Hospital Association pushed this whole idea of getting real data, so race, ethnicity, age, and language data to start really being able to look at disparities in real time. So you can do these small tests of changes, collaborate with other folks, look at your community health needs assessment that every hospital has to do because of the ACA, and look at where opportunities for you to address some of these disparities that are happening within your community. It's funny you mentioned PDSA as, you know, marriage, children, all the above. I tend to think of my parenting as a series of failed randomized control trials <laughs> and it's just you know like maybe it'll work this time <laughs> like maybe. I, have, I have no variables that are consistent but i just keep changing it i hope for the best and so deviating back to to the concept here thinking about patients right because you know all of us are patients in some way and we have a role in like the patient provider relationship even thinking about where we fit in the healthcare system are there certain things that patients should ask for or should be thinking about to make sure that, you know, there is no patient harm to make sure that they are receiving the best quality care? Yeah, um, so our institute's actually been doing a lot of work around patient family engagement and creating tools. And so I don't know about everyone else's experience, but I know when I go to the doctor and I'm in person, you know, I, you know, I have my master's, I have my bachelor's, my doctorate, all of a sudden I revert to like a small child when I'm in the doctor's office and you're just like a deer with headlights. And I don't think that experience is something that only I experience, but many people experience. You're like, you're the doctor, tell me what's wrong. And so oftentimes I always tell people with patients, um, especially patients is have someone that's there to support you. You know, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a family member, I think of my grandparents, my aunt and my aunt and my uncles and my dad, they go with them to the doctor because oftentimes when you're hearing information about your health, 
you're filtering it through, you're hoping you don't hear bad news. And so one strategy I would say for patients is if you can have someone there with you, especially someone that could be the objective person in the conversation and can take notes for you, that's something that's really important. A second thing that's really important is making sure that um, I think oftentimes we don't always prepare for doctor visits. We kind of just like, you know, kind of go in and like, okay, tell me what's wrong. Let's do this. Make sure you start writing down the questions that you have, because when you go into that deer and in headlights moment, it's important that you have a document that you can write down or you can look at and say, okay, I need to ask X, Y, Z questions to my provider. And I always tell people, challenge your providers to go deeper and explain things. If you did not understand it, ask more questions. Because um, oftentimes providers, they're in a rush, they're busy, just like anyone else with a job, you know, there's a lot of things, they're seeing a lot of patients. And if you don't tell them that you didn't understand something, they won't know and be prompted. Oftentimes providers are taught to do a teach back method where they will explain something and then have you teach it back to them, but that always doesn't happen and depends on the type of provider you have. So make sure you ask questions, um, write these questions down in advance and have a pencil, paper, iPad, whatever you do to take notes. Be there ready to take notes um, and ask follow-up questions. But a lot of times in the work that we do in patient safety is how do we empower the patient as a whole? Um, to have an ownership. Um, we often say in healthcare with patient family engagement, healthcare was designed in this way that we're doing things for patients, but how do we change the paradigm on doing things with the patient? The patient being part of that diagnostic process, that patient being part of the healthcare team. And how would you treat your teammate? You would want to communicate the best possible results for your teammate to be able to help you out. And so there's this mutual benefactual um, relationship that is happening. And so that's what I would say would be helpful for patients as they're trying to make sure that they get the best quality of care that they can. And so I, I think we're similar in this way. You know, we're always thinking about systems and how they interact with each other. Are there certain policy changes that could also help to facilitate this? Oh, of course. So being a system guy, one of my favorite system quotes uh, by Deming, which is like, you know, I like follow Deming like so much. He's like the father of um, quality improvement. He would always say every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And I think that's how patient safety and healthcare are. We can't solve anything unless we change the system because the system's always going to work to create these errors all the time. So we have to address those system errors. And so I think um, a couple of different things from a policy perspective that could be done. Um, one is you know, when we think about the PPACA, also known as Obamacare, um, there's the idea of expansion. Weirdly enough, the ACA was not designed to address patient safety and like a, and health disparities in this kind of direct way. But after its passage, there were a lot of benefits like the community needs assessment that had downstream effects actually helped address and improve um, quality of care and reduce these disparities. And so there's aspects of policy changing, expanding the ACA would be a good one. Or if you know you really wanna take a Medicare for all approach, I would say that would probably be the best way. As I mentioned earlier, many people, even with this COVID-19, there's not this idea of a right to health, healthcare as a whole. And so I think those are that's a big policy change from a, a federal level. But I think even a more localized, I think for states incentivizing um, organizations 
uh, to improve quality of care and also improve equity. And I think you have to have some accountability to it because um, a lot of these disparities, we don't need to measure disparities over and over and over again to see if there's disparities. I, we know, I got like 20 years of data saying, and even more saying we have disparities. How can we get to changing it from this idea of healthcare disparities to really how do we pursue equity? And I think that's something that's important. And I think a policy change that could be made at the more local level, how do you incentivize leaders of healthcare organizations that they have a responsibility to be just as, responsibility, just as responsible for equity as they are for quality, as they are for any type of harm that happens? Because we know, um, I was, um, even when I was reading the book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, he talked about, you know, we talk about microaggressions and he, he hates that term microaggressions and said, no, that, that's abuse. <laughs> that's, that's racial abuse. And I think when we see these ideas of bias that happen in healthcare, that's abuse that's happening in healthcare. And so how do we make leaders accountable to making sure that that does not happen? And, you know, leadership, it starts at the top and has to have a mandate. And then the last thing I would say from a policy perspective, which I think has been working for many folks, um, and specifically health systems, is this idea of an anchor mission philosophy, which has been growing over the past year. As I mentioned, uh, health starts where you live, work, and play. And hospitals are humongous economic engines for communities. Um, they control hiring, purchasing, investing, in all aspects of their community. And so they have a humongous role to actually address some of the underlying economic and social determinants of community health as a whole. And I think there could be more institutions are starting to realize that impact and realizing that if they invest in the community and they tackle some of these uh, social determinants of health, these disparities in the community, they actually get a better return because they can focus on the more complex patients and really think about value-based healthcare versus this kind of idea for fee-for-service. They can focus on those complex patients, which there will always be complex patients. So there's never a plethora, or there's never a, you know, a scarcity of that happening, but then they don't have to worry about other the, these other downstream um, health issues that they have to worry about. And so I would say those are some of the high-level policy from a federal, from a state and from a local level that folks could start thinking about. I'm going to go ahead and quote you. Um, I defend sometime in April. I keep forgetting because it's pushing it out my brain. But I'm going to tell my chair, we don't need more data because Dr. <laughs> Brian Buckley said so. <laughs> Pretty much. We, we already know there's a problem. Yeah. We now need to focus on the solutions and the strategies to actually getting to pursuing equity. No, I totally agree. I think we've made it pretty clear, like there are population level differences. Okay, let's do something about it. So Dr. Buckley, I, I love saying it because, you know, I, I remember when you weren't and now that you are, you, you have to get it every time. How can people keep up with you? I mean, the, the four different iterations of you, if they want the change agent version, if they want the healthcare version, if they want the educator version, or if they just want Dr. Buckley, how do people keep up with you? Well, I'm pretty often active on social media. So I would say LinkedIn is my primary way of how I'm really pushing out um, good thought pieces of things that I see, but also active on Twitter as well. So, you know, from a Twitter perspective, at Brian O. Buckley and LinkedIn, you know, I'm B.O. Buckley. 
if you're looking at that last end, but I'm always posting things around what I'm seeing in all aspects of my life. And then also for folks that are interested in being part of my class, you know, um, Georgetown is always doing certificate programs and classes. And so you'll definitely also see me there teaching and talking about change management and how we can intersect this into the world of public health and addressing health equity. Dr. Buckley, thank you. Thank you for the time. And thank you for breaking this down because I remember as I was putting together the outline for this episode, I didn't want it to come across too brief, but I really wanted to expand on like the relationship between patient safety, quality improvement and opportunities to advance equity. And I think you were able to deliver on that. So thank you so much, sir, for joining me. You're welcome. And thank you for inviting me. And I'm looking forward to calling you Dr. Bell when that day comes. So um, just, yeah, once again, thank you for the time that I've had to talk with you and to your audience. And there we have it. Uh, Want to just thank again, Dr. Buckley, for joining us on the podcast. Understanding that there are so many things that happen in the healthcare system and understanding that even to the point of the Institute of Medicine's report to Air is Human, mistakes happen. But when we look at it from an equity lens, we start to understand that mistakes tend to happen to certain groups over and over and over again. I also realized that I started this episode talking about the COVID-19 vaccine, and I think it's it's interesting having a chance to listen to the episode in its entirety, that we will also have a conversation about patient safety. And so I completely understand the history and even contemporary examples of medical mistrust. But I also understand that from a public health standpoint, we need to ensure that people have the opportunity to be healthy and to protect themselves. And right now, the only measure for doing that is COVID-19 vaccines. And I have my own family members who I've had conversations with. They know what I do for a living. They know that I work in public health and they say, I'm not getting the vaccination, which is completely fine. I completely understand. But I, I use this analogy in this metaphor for really breaking it down. When you purchase a car, you can't drive the car off the lot without having car insurance. If you were to get into an accident without car insurance, you are now responsible for whatever damage may have occurred. When you have car insurance, you have some level of protection for what has ever for whatever has occurred. And that to me is the same thing when it comes to COVID-19 and these vaccinations. You are not fully immune from getting COVID-19 because you get vaccinated. You are now 90%. Whereas before, you are fully susceptible to whatever may happen. And so this is my my silent plea that if you are interested in keeping yourself and your family safe please consider getting the vaccination. I also want to send a quick reminder for following us on social media. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. And just the last reminder, I have an announcement coming this Friday. And I'm going to keep saying it because I don't want to talk myself out of doing it. But if you are following us, 
if you're not following us, make sure that you are so that you can see what we have in store. So in the meantime, we've got another episode in two weeks where we're talking to the Not Just a Black Body campaign. Really great episode and ties really well into what Dr. Buckley has shared here. Stay tuned for that. And as always, equity matters.